I had planned this morning to do a little more introduction uh, into the book of James, just take a little time uh, to do that. But then, of course, I normally don't just say that I'm just going to do some introduction like we're in a, a class or a lecture on the book of James. So you always want to connect that with a particular text. And so the obvious text to connect that with is the next text that we that appears after we studied uh, and introduced James last week with James chapter 1, verse 1, which was the greeting. And the text that we're going to be looking at this week was one that, um, as fairly regularly happens, one that um, I needed a lot. It's one that I've been... Um, spending a lot of time thinking about and working through this week and just felt that I couldn't do anything else but just zoom in on this text because um, it's been one of those weeks and it's one of those periods where this is just a text that I need and I suspect, in fact I know, that there are uh, a number of people among us who I believe also could benefit from this text. So I'm going to leave the introductory stuff beside that aside that will come come out in the next weeks as we go through James, and would like to focus with you this morning on uh, the verses two to four of chapter one of James, and what we're going to do is uh, read them, and then I'm going to do something a little different from what I normally do, at least on the Sunday morning. I'm basically going to kind of go through it almost word for word because this is just an extremely rich and um, well put together sentence or two. And because of the topic, which deals with hardships and how to, how to deal with hardships, I really would prefer that you hear words from the Lord rather than too many of my own words. It is true I'm going to close the sermon with some words from Fred, Frederick Buechner, and he's pretty good too. But um, I don't have tremendously a uh, lot for you myself, but I'm hoping that the Word of God will, um, will speak to you this morning in ways, in any ways uh, that you need it. So you remember last week James introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are spread out uh, outside of Jerusalem in this time of persecution. And then he says greetings, and you remember the the way, the the word that he used for greetings is may joy be with you. This is the greeting that he uses. It's a little bit unusual in the New Testament. And then he goes right in with this topic of joy, and I'm going to read the text for you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James starts this verse by using the word count. And in the, uh, this is in the, uh, uh, the ESV that we use here, but in the New International Version, the word that's used here is consider. And what it means is to consider or to reckon. Actually, what it means is to think. So these trials are overcoming you. And the first thing that James says is 
Just stop and think a second, if you can. Just stop and think, consider, take a moment to just sit down and consider what is happening and consider your reaction to whatever hardship it is. And then, he says, consider it joy. And it's interesting that this links right to, to that first greeting. So right within these first, first couple of words of James, this word joy appears twice. May joy be with you. Consider it joy. And this joy, as I'm sure you all know, is not like a feeling of happiness. It's not a sense which can... Not a feeling that just comes and, and, and goes. James is not saying in the middle of your hardship, uh, just be happy. It's going to be all right. Be happy. That's not what he's saying. Uh, one of the commentaries that I use, and I'll put the quote up on the wall here, says this. In this particular verse, the joy is not eschatological as Peter Davids would have it. The joy of those expecting the intervention of God at the end of the age. So this is not a joy that says, well, be happy now, because in the end it's all going to turn out all right. There are a couple of other verses in James where he implies that, but that's not the, the force of what he's saying here. Nor is there any suggesting that people should rejoice in suffering per se. The author wants his readers to become conscious, you understand, you reckon, you know, of the process and the result of the experience of hardship. So we're sitting down in hardship, and we're considering, we're reckoning, we're looking for the joy that comes in hardship. And then we're going to get more in a second to what James means by that. And then he goes on, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Everybody's included. Nobody is excluded. And one of the things that's hard for us to realize and to remember about the community to which James was writing, and if you've been in a so-called developing country, uh, almost anywhere in a developing country, but certainly in the villages, you know that you cannot get away from people. <laughs> if you are living in a village, or if you are living in a big, in a small town, or even if you are living in many of the huge cities of the world, there is no place where you can go and be by yourself. We have the luxury of being able to do that. Some of us are living alone. We can spend all of our days alone if we want. Or all of us have big enough houses that I can separate myself into the other room and stay there for almost as long as I want. And I don't really have to go out and interact with anybody to meet any of my needs. But in the situation in which James was was living and the people to whom he was speaking, that was not possible. You had to interact. There were people all around you. You never slept alone. Your family was there. Your uncles and aunts were there. Your brothers and sisters, your nieces and nephews. 
The next house is right there. You can hear everything that's happening there. You know who's in the market. You know who's, take, you know, you know who's selling you the meat that you need. And, and all of this is happening right in this, in this community. There is no escaping this community. We are in it together, brothers and sisters. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now the trials that James is referring to, you remember we said last week, they're, they're focused on a very specific time of, of church history and of history when the church in Jerusalem was being scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And again, all these people are moving in community. No one is getting in his car all by himself and attaching a U-Haul trailer to the back and heading off somewhere all by himself. It's all happening in community. And as we learn from the book of James, the trials that they're facing as they move out of Jerusalem and into all these different, for them, foreign places is wrongful desires that lead to destruction, favoritism, you go into a new place, who's there, who has the position, who doesn't have the position, who should have the position, who's better than me, who's richer than me, who's poorer than me, everybody's jockeying for position. And going along with that, we learn from James, is the problem of envy. Why do they have that and I don't have that? Why are they getting this privilege and I am not? There's the economic just injustice. Again, James talks a lot about this, this injustice between rich and poor. And then he closes off the book, the letter, with talking about people who have physical illness. So within the context of the book of James, these trials of various kinds, wrongful desires, favoritism, envy, economic injustice, physical illness, are all things that are the daily struggles of these peoples who are being forced away from their homes into, for them, new areas where they need to settle and build their lives again. And then James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, and this ties back on, builds on the very first word, count and reckon. So again, he's saying, wait a minute, for you know, think, think for just a second. Don't let your emotions uh, 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 take you away. Stop and think again for a second. What do we know about these trials? What do we know about the situation which we find ourselves in? What do we know about these hardships? And James says, what you know is there's testing. And this testing is actually in its root the same word as the word trials. So you see James is building up these words. Joys appeared twice. No, think has appeared twice. Now trial and testing has appeared twice. It's another way of saying the same thing. This testing 
this testing of your faith, this trial of your faith. And throughout the book of James, I think when you see the word faith, we tend to think of that as I assent to something, I, I say with my mouth that this is true, and, and that's certainly true. But I want us to think more in the book of James of the word faithfulness. More as an action word. The testing of your faithfulness. It's a quality that develops over time. It's something that you live in and live with. It's something that you practice. It's an action. And of course, James is the book of faith without action is not faith. So whenever you read the word faith in the book of James, think of faithfulness. The testing of your faithfulness produces... There's movement here. One thing leads to another. Steadfastness. Endurance. Patience. The ability to stay the course over the long haul. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, a long obedience in the same direction. So these trials of various kinds... Test your faithfulness, which produces steadfastness. And let this steadfastness, you see he's repeating the word again. So he's re- joy he's repeated, testing he's repeated, steadfastness is repeated. Let this steadfastness have its full effect. And there are two Greek words here, uh, the word full and the word effect. The Greek word for full, and you'll see why I'm spending time on this in just a second, is the word, it comes, it's a form of the word telos, or telos, telos, T-E-L-O-S. Some of you know that Greek word. It's a word that means purpose. So you have a purpose. And then effect in Greek is the word ergo, ergon, which is the word for like work. We talk about ergonomics, right? So there's this, this full effect, this it works purpose. So this steadfastness works perfect purpose. And then it says that you may be perfect. And that word perfect is also a very interesting one. When we, tend, when we read the word perfect, we tend to think about, and I use this example all the time, a spelling test. I have ten spelling words, and I need to get them right, and if I get them right and get all ten perfectly spelled right, I get a ten, and that's the perfect score. And when we read the word perfect in the New Testament, we tend to read it that way. It's like a test, and I have to score 100 on the test. But the Greek word that's translated perfect here is the same Greek word that the word full translates, telos. It's exactly the same word. It's not at all about a spelling test. It's the concept of purpose or meaning, or becoming what you were meant to be. 
One of the commentaries I'm using, written by um, Martha Keish Moore, uh, says the following, and I'll put the quote up here for you. Telos, telos can be applied in its fullest sense only to God and Christ. For human beings, it means wholeness, consistency of purpose, a person who has achieved maturity, an undivided totality of personality and behavior. So you see where James is going here. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faithfulness produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its purpose, work its purpose, that you may be mature, undivided, that your personality and your behavior are made of the same cloth. Lacking nothing. Perfect and complete entire, whole, in all its parts complete, lacking nothing. And in the same commentary that, that I'm using, uh, um, Moore comments this way, Womanist interpreters, and if you've never had heard that phrase, womanist interpreters before, it's womanist interpreters of the Bible, those are interpreters who center the experience and perspective perspectives of black women, particularly African-American women. So it's from the perspective of African-American women as they read the Bible. Womenist interpreters argue for this type of wholeness through their commitment to the wholeness of the collective community, which transcends the boundaries of racism, sexism, heterosexism, classism, and ableism. All the things that James is talking about. All the things that are happening in this community of James. The completeness to which James is calling us, understood in this way, may present the very opposite of individual achievements in beauty or financial gain. Instead, to be mature, lacking in nothing, applies to the entire community. So James, in these, in these three verses, is, is sweeping us along in a movement through the various trials and hardships in which we find ourselves. And I've made it into a little bit of a timeline. This is, I, I don't really like timelines that much. I wish that it was more organic, but just bear with me, bear with me for right now. So you have the trials, not if you're going to have trials, but when that you consider, reckon, and figure out that impact your faithfulness, doing what you're called to do over the long haul, that result in wholeness, maturity, integrity, completeness, purpose, the telos idea, that ends up in joy. See how this process works? Trials that work on your faithfulness, that teach you how to continue to keep going in the long haul. 
that bring you together into a place of completeness and, and maturity and wholeness, not just with yourself, but with the community in which you find yourself. And that leads to joy. And it's rooted in the joy of the greeting in verse 1. This is not just a self-help thing. This is not just a therapeutic treatment where you go to your psychotherapist and he or she says, if you'll do these things, you'll come out of it okay. Psychotherapists are good at doing that, and that's very helpful. But that's not what James is saying. What James is saying is this process is rooted in the words of God to you saying, my joy will be with you. This is not something that happens separate from God. It's not something you just uh, brace yourself and eat your Wheaties in the morning and get up and just do. When you're rooted in God like the tree the tree in, in Psalm 1, when you're rooted by the waters of this joy that flows from God, then you can go through this process of, of, of the hardships that we all have, are, and will experience. Moving into wholeness and moving into completeness and moving into joy. One of my, as you know, my favorite theologians, Frederick Buechner, talks about, and when I first heard him talk about this, it just changed everything for me. Talks about the stewardship of pain, and I'll substitute the word hardness for pain, hardship for pain. I'm sure, he says, there are 106 ways we have of coping with pain. Another way is to be a good steward of it. You've heard the word stewardship before. It's generally related to finances. But think about being a good steward along the line of what James has laid out of the pain and hardship in your life. And I'm quoting now from a sermon that Buechner gave, I don't know, 20 years ago on this topic. I thought a lot about what the stewardship of pain means, the ways in which we deal with pain. Besides being a steward of it, there are alternatives. The most tempting is to forget it, to hide it, to cover it over, to pretend it never happened because it's too hard to deal with. It's too unsettling to remember. Another thing you can do with your pain, of course, is to use it to win sympathy. I guess a sob story is a story you tell hoping that people will sob with you. Sort of an end in itself. A way almost of giving yourself a kind of stature in the eyes of the world as a suffering one. Another way, I suppose, of dealing with your pain is using it as an excuse for failure if you think of yourself as a failure. If only I had gotten the breaks. If only those bad things hadn't happened. Who knows where I might have been today. Another great temptation about pain, I think, is to allow yourself to be embittered and trapped by it. 
But pain can become a treasure if we treasure it to the point where it can become compassion and healing, not just for ourselves, but also for other people. If you want to sort, see that sort of thing in operation, the treasuring of pain, the using of pain for the healing of yourself and others, someday attend an open meeting of AA or any of the related groups. That is exactly what those people are doing. Sharing their hurts, their experiences, and their joys. And then he says, remember the cross. It seems to me that the cross of Christ, in a way, speaks somewhat like this same word, saying that out of the greatest pain endured in love and faithfulness comes the greatest beauty and our greatest hope. And then another quote from Buechner. We are never more alive to life than when it hurts. We are never more alive to life than when it hurts. Never more aware both of our powerlessness to save ourselves and of at least the possibility of a power beyond ourselves to save us and heal us if we can only open ourselves to it. We are never more in touch with life than when life is painful. Never more in touch with hope than we are then. And now just a couple of things from me. As I deal with the hardships that I have in my life, which of course are nothing like being bombed out of Kiev, but still, they're hardships, and they're mine, and they're ours. Based on this verse and a few other th these these verses and a few other things, I try to do the following things. The first one is to acknowledge the pain, the unfairness, the injustice. I don't deserve this. This hurts. To be honest and to speak it out. I don't know if you've read or heard on the news this week, but I've read at least of about four collegiate athlete young ladies around 19 years old who even after having one of the most successful athletic events in their whole career committed suicide. I don't know any details. But everyone was surprised. How could this have happened? Just the day before, she hit the home run that won the game. And I wonder if part of a contributing factor is that those young ladies just didn't feel there was a place where they could lay it on the table and say, this hurts, this is painful, this is how I'm feeling, 
This is the hardship that I am suffering. I talk regularly with the spiritual director, and one of the reasons why I do is so that I can just put into words what's happening. And then she often asks me, well, how do you feel about that? And I give some thoughts about how I feel about it. And then I say to her, what emotions do you pick up from me? Because I, I can funnel everything into my own paradigms. I'm pretty good at that after all these years. What do you see? What do you feel? What do you see coming through my facial expressions and my words? And oftentimes she'll come back with something that I didn't even realize. But that was real and that was there. The first step on this process is just to say, this sucks. And it shouldn't be. Admit it to yourself. Admit it to God if there's no one else. But certainly if there's someone you can trust, go to that person and say, this is the way I'm feeling, and it really sucks. And then, this is the harder part, and I realize that this doesn't always work, especially with some kinds of mental illness. But make some effort to regain perspective. Remember James talks about that. What you know. Consider. Reckon. Count it. Sit down and make up a balance. Sit down and think. And maybe you need someone else to help you do this. Oftentimes you might. Jesus has lived. Died risen from the dead and is making all things new. God is in Christ reconciling all things to himself. James has said it in verse 1, joy to you. That is the truth. That is the truth about our lives and about our reality. And when you're lost in the pain and when you're lost in the hardship and when you've lost your way, whether it's in a small thing or major things in your life are going wrong, these hardships that James talks about of various kinds, this is the bedrock. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming back. And everything that's happening to me fits into that knowledge and revelation from God. And then ask yourself the question, and this is so helpful to me, what would stewardship of this pain and hardship look like? What would it look to be a good steward of this terrible thing that's happening to me or that I'm experiencing. Doesn't take it away. Doesn't solve anything. Doesn't wrap it up in a nice box. But it asks me the question, how can I be a steward of this hardship that has come across my path 
for whatever reason. And then James, and really God through James, says to us, in the middle of our hardships, not that they're going to go away, not that everything's going to be fixed, but that through in that crucible, in that furnace, in those waves, in that storm, God is working through Jesus and through his Holy Spirit to turn us as individuals and we as a community into people who are whole and complete and mature. And that's the wonderful but very scary calling that God has placed upon each of us as individuals and together as a group as we journey through this life. I'd like to conclude by just having you, inviting you to a moment of thinking through what we've just been talking about. Lauren Daigle has a song called Hold On To Me, and it's expression of faith and trust that God is holding on to her and to us in the middle of whatever trials we are facing.